four-part series that we've been doing called The Journey to Bethlehem. And uh, I, I do have a confession to make. When I started working on this sermon series, I was so excited about it. I had absolutely no idea that a musical called The Journey to Bethlehem just came out a few weeks ago, starring Antonio Banderas as Herod. Yeah, I know. Wow, right? I had, I had no... And some, somebody asked me if I decided to title this series because of the musical, and I have to say I most certainly did not, okay? I just thought it was a good idea at the time, and I tell you what, I still think it's a good idea because the topic of Jesus gets better every single time I hear it. Uh, the first week, we talked about uh, a woman by the name of Rachel and her journey to Bethlehem, a pregnant woman and her journey to Bethlehem. She was so discouraged by the life she was living that by the time that she made it to Bethlehem and had her son, literally the last words she uttered to her husband were, name him son of my suffering. And the boy's father decided he was not going to name the boy son of my suffering. He would name him Benjamin, son of my right hand which gives a place of honor in the household. The second week, we talked about another journey to Bethlehem. And it was when another woman, out of loyalty to her mother-in-law, decided to go and place her trust in a God that she never knew, despite the fact that she wasn't even one of his people. That woman's name was Ruth, and she was a Moabite. And Ruth, he, she makes the dangerous uphill journey to Bethlehem with Naomi, and she found that this God of ours never breaks a promise. And Ruth was redeemed through her husband's relative, Boaz, whom she married, and she became the great-grandmother of David, and in turn in the line of Jesus. So this week we are talking about our third journey to Bethlehem. And this one, this one actually features a man as the pivotal person in the story. And this is no ordinary man. This is a man by the name of Samuel, who had such an amazing story. Where he came from and what he did. And none of it would have been possible without one very special person in his life. His mother. You know, his mother is a woman by the name of Hannah. And she has a, a familiar problem that we see in the Old Testament. Turn with me to 1 Samuel chapter 1. And we're going to get to know Samuel just a little bit. <clears throat> we're going to learn where he comes from. The call on his life. This problem that his mother Hannah had was that the one thing she wanted in this world, she could not have. And what was the one thing she wanted? A child. She wanted a child. Her husband, his name was Elkanah, and he had two wives. The other wife was Penina, who had kids. And it, it, it doesn't say just how many kids she had. Sons and daughters is the hint that we get. And Hannah is just miserable with this. Penina, she taunted her about it. Not unlike Leah and Rachel, as we talked about two weeks ago. The wife that was favored by the husband could not conceive. But the other one had plenty of kids to boot. So join me in 1 Samuel chapter 1, verse 9, where it says, On one occasion, Hannah got up after they ate and drank at Shiloh. The priest Eli was sitting on a chair by the doorpost of the Lord's temple. Deeply hurt, Hannah prayed to the Lord and wept. With many tears, making a vow, she pleaded, 
Lord of armies. If you will take notice of your servant's affliction, remember and not forget me and give your servant a son. I will give him to the Lord all the days of his life and his hair will never be cut. You know, it's strange. Even when the angel appears to people in the New Testament saying, you're going to have a child. They say, well, well, I serve the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And what did all three of those men's wives have in common? They didn't think they'd be able to have children. All three of them. And here we are with another one. What we know is that God can make it happen. And she vows that this child will never have his hair cut. It's kind of a strange thing to say, isn't it? Well, like Samson, what Hannah is saying is that her son will be what is called a Nazarite. And the Nazarites are set apart from everyone else. They took a vow that they would never drink alcohol, they would never publicly mourn for the dead, and they would never cut their own hair as a sign of their vow. And Hannah is so desperate for a son that she goes on to say that, Lord, if you give me a son, I will give him right back to you. It's essentially what she's saying. And that's a powerful, powerful prayer. It shows so much trust. It shows that her desire for a son outweighs her earthly desire for one. But let's continue. It says, while she continued praying in the Lord's presence... Eli watched her mouth. Hannah was praying silently, and though her lips were moving, her voice could not be heard. Eli thought that she was drunk and said to her, how long are you going to be drunk? Get rid of your wine. No, my Lord, Hannah replied, I am a woman with a broken heart. I haven't had any wine or beer. I've been pouring out my heart before the Lord. Don't think of me as a wicked woman. I've been praying from the depth of my anguish and resentment. Eli responded, go in peace, and may the God of Israel grant the request that you have made of him. May your servant find favor with you, she replied. Then Hannah went on her way. She ate and no longer looked despondent. You know, anyone who prays a prayer like that, where it says she is pouring out her heart before the Lord, really is something that I would, lo- I would love to have someone like Hannah pray for me. How about you? You know, that's why I have people like Navon pray. They pour out their hearts before the Lord when they pray. And amazingly enough, as we read further in the story, God does give her a son. And she decides to name him Samuel. Hannah keeps her word to the Lord. And by the time the boy is weaned, he goes to live in the temple. And in time, it says that all Israel, from Dan up in the north to Beersheba, knew that Samuel was a confirmed prophet of the Lord. And and let's face it, you read the story of Samuel, he is quite the powerhouse. He is the last judge of Israel, following in the footsteps of people like Gideon, Ehud, Jephthah, and Samson. Imperfect men who followed a perfect God. And I believe that Samuel was among the greatest of these judges. And ironically, we don't have that many stories of him until he's old. He was the judge in a time where Israel was turning their backs on God. In fact, one of the only stories about him, it says that the people longed to come back to the Lord. 
And Samuel saw to it that they could worship safely, while their enemies, the Philistines, stood by and watched. And by the time Samuel grew old, the people demanded something of him. Something that it seems like it kind of caught him off guard. And we're going to find it in 1 Samuel chapter 8. And the people are asking, essentially, for a curse and a blessing. It says in 1 Samuel 8, When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges over Israel. His firstborn son name was Joel, and his second was Abijah. They were judges in Beersheba. However, his sons did not walk in his ways. They turned toward dishonest profit, took bribes, and perverted justice. You know, like so many people in the Bible, the greatness of someone chosen by God has failings as a father. We see it throughout Scripture. Verse 4, So all the elders of Israel gathered together and went to Samuel at Ramah. They said to him, Look, you are old. Talk about being blunt. And your sons do not walk in your ways. Therefore appoint a king to judge us the same as all the other nations have. And so far, this, this doesn't sound terrible. You know, the people fear for the future because their potential leaders are definitely going to lead them down the wrong path. But asking for a king is where things get a little complex. You know, you'll notice this strange little something in here. Appoint a king to judge us as all the other nations have. You know, they want to be like everyone else. You know, how many people think praying a prayer to God, make me like everyone else, is a good prayer? No, no, good. I'm glad we have some solidarity in here. Yes, yes. But these, they're saying we want to be like everyone else. You know, in fact, later on in the chapter, that's the very thing that they say. Make us like everyone else. When they said, give us a king to judge us, Samuel considered their demand wrong. So he prayed to the Lord. But the Lord told him, listen to the people and everything they say to you. They have not rejected you. They have rejected me as their king. You know, that, that is some great assurance. Have you ever shared the gospel with someone and they rejected it? And you felt like they rejected you? They rejected God. They didn't reject you. A lot of people use that as an excuse too. But really what they're doing is rejecting God if they don't want to listen. So as it says, uh, let's see, they, uh, verse 8, They are doing the same thing to you that they have done to me since the day I brought them out of Egypt until this day, abandoning me and worshiping other gods. Listen to them, but solemnly warn them and tell them about the customary rights of the kings who will reign over them. He tells them, but do the people care? Of course not. The people don't want to hear it. They're too busy wanting to be like everyone else. So it's back to the drawing board. It's really one of the most amazing examples in the Bible of be careful what you wish for. You just might get it. And Samuel is led to Israel's first king, a man by the name of Saul. And the journey that Samuel takes to anoint King Saul is not to Bethlehem. 
In fact, the journey that Samuel takes to anoint this man, it's almost too easy when he met Saul. God even tells him, I'm going to send him to you. And sure enough, Saul, while looking for some missing donkeys for his father, he runs into Samuel when he reaches a district called Zuf. And it's a hard lesson that the Israelites are about to learn. It's going to take 40 years for this all to get sorted out. Because is Saul the king that the people asked for? Yes, he is. Is he the king that the people need? Not at all. And God is going to show them what is best. Because this king Saul guy, he's a big, mighty, powerful man. It says he's a head taller than everyone else. He certainly looks like a king. But he gets a little full of himself a few chapters later. He starts trying to take on roles that don't belong to him. He tries to function as a priest. And to make matters worse, he's outright disobeying things that God tells him to do. Saul gets so bad, he loses the favor of God on his life. And he's rejected by God, and Samuel is despondent. Do you think Samuel feels rejected once again? I think Samuel feels like a failure. You know, the king, he anointed. Could God have been wrong? Could God have made a mistake? Well, you know as well as I do, God does not make mistakes. But he does things so that we will understand his plan better. Even if it takes an extra 40 years. And whether he knew it or not, God was about to send Samuel on another journey. And 1 Samuel 16 is where it all happens. Where it says, The Lord said to Samuel, How long are you going to mourn for Saul? Since I have rejected him as king over Israel. Fill your horn with oil and go. I am sending you to Jesse of Bethlehem because I have selected for myself a king from his sons. Samuel asks, how can I go? Saul will hear about it and kill me. The Lord answered, take a young cow with you and say, I have come to sacrifice to the Lord. Then invite Jesse to the sacrifice and I will let you know what you are to do. You are to anoint for me the one I indicate to you. And I have to believe that Samuel, on his way to Bethlehem, you know, he, he, he certainly had some time to think. He had some time to think about God, about Saul, about his mother, about the call on his life as a result, and about God. You know, when you have a long journey, your mind can go in many, in many places. And believe me, this is the before radios and smartphones and, and listening to podcasts while you're on a good long road trip. It's Samuel and his own thoughts. Verse 4, Samuel did what the Lord directed and went to Bethlehem. When the elders of the town met him, they trembled and asked, Do you come in peace? In peace, he replied. I've come to sacrifice to the Lord. Consecrate yourselves and come with me to the sacrifice. Then he consecrated Jesse and his sons and invited them to the sacrifice. When they arrived, Samuel saw Eliab and said, Certainly the Lord's anointed one is here before him. But the Lord said to Samuel, Do not look at his appearance 
or his stature, because I have rejected him. Humans do not see what the Lord sees. For humans see what is visible, but the Lord sees the heart. You know, it it might have been a month ago that we went through this whole story with David, where, where Samuel is looking for the right guy. He's going through all the sons of Jesse. And then there's nobody left. Like I said, it it was almost like the Cinderella story. Is there anyone else here that I could possibly, you know, take a look at? And no one even considered the young man back working the stable. David is the one chosen by God. And it takes quite a while for this young boy to grow into the man who God wants him to be. David, who is as imperfect as the rest of us, But his heart is for the Lord, even when he commits his biggest blunders. You know, there's something to say about these Old Testament examples of heading to Bethlehem. A journey to Bethlehem to give birth. A journey to Bethlehem out of obedience to get redemption. And in this case, it's a journey to Bethlehem to anoint the king. Because we know that hundreds of years after Samuel, there's another couple of people who made the journey to Bethlehem to anoint the king. You saw a reenactment just half an hour ago. And I'm talking about the wise men as they journeyed from the east. And as you may know, it was not on December the 25th. Not not to let anyone down. Yeah, I know, I know, sorry. It's also very likely was not on the night that Jesus was born. (laughs) We also don't know how many wise men there were. There were at least two. But we don't know if there were any more than that. Probably were. We don't have any. We know it's the three wise men, of course, comes from the song. Truth versus tradition, you know. But we do know a few things about the wise men if we're willing to fill in the blanks. You know, in fact, a few years ago, someone came to me and said, oh yeah, these these pagan wise men who came from the east, nothing of the sort. They were not pagan, they were Jewish. They were Jews. They came from the east, a place called Persia, where the Jews were living in exile all those years, and only a remnant came back over time. So they came from Persia. And we also know that they were stargazers. Not unlike another person exiled to Persia by the name of Daniel, who studied stars and prophesied accordingly. Has anyone ever seen the Bethlehem Star video? It's free on YouTube. If you haven't, go home and type in the Bethlehem Star. And it shows you exactly when the star was in the sky. According to science, who'd have thunk it? Proving the very point. Now, the popular theory that I believe is that these wise men had studied the writings of Daniel. And when they saw the star in the sky, they knew it was time to make the journey to Bethlehem to give gifts of gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And they they likely got there when Jesus was around two years old. But, But let me ask you, because this is where it gets interesting. Was Jesus the first king that these wise men encountered on their journey. He most certainly wasn't. Turn with me to Matthew chapter 2. And if you've never met King Herod, I'd like to introduce you to one of the Bible's baddest bad guys. Herod was no joke. 
He was among the most richest people at the time. He literally had a mountain built. You can go there today. It's a World Heritage Site. A mountain that he built that he put his fortress on top of. He was so rich, he had an audience with Julius Caesar and asked him if he could purchase a title, King of the Jews, to which Caesar granted him. This actually fulfills prophecy as far back as Genesis with Jacob and Esau, because Herod's a descendant of Esau. I'm getting way too deep into this, but let's see what the Bible has to say about this. It says, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of King Herod, wise men from the east arrived in Jerusalem saying, where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star at its rising and have come to worship him. When King Herod heard this, he was deeply disturbed and all Jerusalem with him. So he assembled all the chief priests and scribes of the people and asked them where the Messiah would be born. In Bethlehem of Judea, they told him, because this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, because out of you will come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Now Herod, Herod is no fool. He knows that the news of the coming of the Messiah would mean the party is over for him. And somehow these men, searching for the king of the Jews, happen to find him. But it's the wrong king of the Jews. It says, Then Herod secretly summoned the wise men and asked them the exact time the star appeared. He sent them to Bethlehem and said, Go and search carefully for the child. When you find him, report back to me so that I too can go and worship him. You know, I I believe this was a terrifying experience for the wise men. A man this powerful, this rich, and he is basically using them to destroy the Savior of humanity. It says, after hearing the king, they went on their way. And there it was, the star they had seen at its rising. It led them until it came and stopped above the place where the child was. When they saw the star, they were overwhelmed with joy. Entering the house, they saw the child with Mary, his mother, and falling to their knees, they worshipped him. Then they opened their treasures and presented him with gifts, gold, frankincense, and myrrh. And being warned in a dream not to go back to Herod, they returned to their own country by another route. You know, let me ask, when God is leading you somewhere, does he ever lead you to the wrong place? Does God ever, like, misread the, the directions? Or does, is God's GPS ever off? Did he lead Samuel to the wrong guy when he took him to Saul? No. He most certainly didn't. Samuel did not make a mistake when he anointed Saul as king of Israel, but it was God's way of showing them, there's your way and there's my way. And my way is the one that's going to bless you. My way is the one that's going to be better. And I believe that these wise men, when they got a glimpse of this man Herod, this King Herod, who purchased the title, who was among one of the most cruel men to ever live, who literally put babies to death because he thought that they would somehow, somehow he would get Jesus that way. 
I think God was showing them, listen, this is what mankind, this is where man gets you. But I'm leading you somewhere better. I'm leading you to a better king. I'm leading you to the greatest king. When we say that what the people wanted, and they wanted Saul, but God wanted David, and what God wanted was infinitely better. Man respects a conquering rich king like Herod. But is that what God wants? Of course not. He brought the wise men to anoint someone significantly more special. Someone who's going to change the world. Someone like Jesus. And as all journeys and on throughout our lives, God may take us places that don't seem quite right. But we have to ask ourselves, what brought me here? And what does God want me to get out of it? How is this going to be used for God's glory? Because I have news for you. If you look at it through that kind of lens, he will never let you down. There's always a grand scheme of things. Samuel was an old, old man by then. He never even saw David become king. But I'm telling you, I'm telling you, there is an end game to this. And it's called the second coming of Jesus. Does that get you excited? Is that something that we can look forward to? Even if we don't live to see it, if we were a link in the chain that brought people closer to God's glory, isn't that always going to be worth it? I certainly, certainly think so. I want to speak to anyone in here if you're feeling like you're just having a hard time seeing the end game. Seeing, you know, maybe, maybe you've encountered a Saul in your life. Maybe you feel like God has led you there. And you're saying, you know, I'm ready for the David in my life to come. Well, we want to pray for you for that. We would love for you to have that type of foresight. And if you still have trouble, why don't we read some Revelation together? Because when we flip to the back of the book, guess what? We win. We win every single time. And I'm glad that someone like Samuel was there to be that link in the chain. So I'm going to invite anyone who needs prayer. If you do, we are more than happy to give it to you if our prayer team can come up. But we also, uh, today is our Christmas party. Anyone who's hungry, please stay. Please eat. I made some chili. And I'm going to bless the food right now, okay? Heavenly Father, I thank you so much. I thank you for the great God that you are. I not only thank you for your first coming of Jesus, but I thank you for the second coming. What is to come? What is going to happen? What is so exciting down the line? God, you are so good to your people. And it's in the mighty name of Jesus, I pray. And everyone said, amen.